invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fourth gospel, to John's gospel. We are turning the corner from chapter four, a long chapter where we met with the Samaritan woman and we ended that chapter, of course, with the healing of an official's son. And you recall that. And this morning we're going to be looking at chapter five. And it's a very significant chapter in that it is a turning point. A significant turning point from here, from this point on, from this story that we will look at this morning in verses 1 through 16, now the persecution starts. And you'll see it escalate as we go on from here. So we're going to begin by reading verse 1 through 16 of chapter 5. Let's look at this together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words in this story. We, it gives us a, something of a, a, trepidation, a trepidation as we move forward from here, as we see their hatred, as we see the persecution rise in the following chapters, even to the point of the crucifixion. The crucifixion. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us now to understand the importance of this story, the story of this lame man, and help us, O oh Lord, to find its rightful place in its context, its import to the overall context of your redemptive plan in the church of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So this is the third miracle. The first, of course, was in chapter 2, turning the water to wine at the wedding of Cana. And then, of course, we ended at chapter 4, as I said, with the healing of the official's son. And so now this is 
the next healing that we see Jesus perform. So it's, it's, this is just, again, undeniable proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. We've seen that in every section of every chapter we've been through so far. In all of the first four chapters, and chapter 5 is no exception, and I would suggest to you that there, the rest of the Gospel of John will make just that claim that he is, in fact, no less than the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So we're looking at this, again, as its significance and as being more than just a miracle. He's more than just a miracle worker, as I mentioned to you last time when we looked at the official's son. It's, it's, they view him progressively, as we often do, as people that end up getting saved often do. They're looking at him progressively. Well, this is interesting sounding, they might, they might begin with. And there's something intriguing about what he's saying. Tell me more. Well, he did these things. So, so now he's someone who's not only a great teacher, but he's a miracle worker. This man can actually perform miracles. That doesn't get them to the cross yet. He's more than a miracle worker. I mean, Pharaoh had some pretty impressive magicians, didn't they? Yeah. They could take a stick and make it a snake, and just like Aaron did. So he's more than that. And this is much more than just him performing another miracle. So the passage marks this place where the, the religionists, if you will, the, the moralists, the, the, the legalists, the Pharisees, scribes, and so on, as it's referring to the Jews, that's who it's talking about. It's talking about the Jewish leadership that wants nothing to do with the arrival of their Messiah. So their inquisitiveness that we've seen so far has, not, has now changed to jealousy. And that jealousy, as it will, as it sits fermenting in the heart of man, is turned into a hatred and murderous hearts that will be plotting very soon. This man must die. He must be killed. Chapter 7, we see that, but we see that also in verse 18 already of our chapter when we get to that, Lord willing, next week. So Jesus approaches this man to heal him on the Sabbath. Do you think that was coincidental? Seven days in the week. He could have gone there. The people are always there, the lame and the blind, those that are sick and diseased by the pool of Bethesda, which is supposed to have healing properties to it. If, you, um, if I ask you right now to find verse 4 in your text, good luck. If you have verse 4, there's a reason that it's actually not there. And that is because they inserted something that is not in the oldest of the manuscripts, anything uh, Less than 400 years old, any manuscript evidence of the scriptures that's less than 400 years old does not include the business of an angel coming and stirring the water. So we need to, we need to remove that. It's nothing more than superstition. We don't see any further support of that, such a thing in all of scripture. But whatever the case, these people were convinced that there's some healing property whenever the water is stirred. So, just so you understand why there's no verse 4, unless you maybe have a King James Bible or whatever. So, in chapter 5 and verse 18 in our chapter, it says that as this persecution is growing among these, uh, the, in the hearts, within the hearts of these religionists, 
They're seeking all the more to kill him. So that's, that's what we've begun. And so that he picked the Sabbath is intentional. It's time. In the Father's plan, he senses that this is time now to start ramping up the persecution. He did this deliberately. There's nothing not deliberate with Jesus, who is the Christ. This is absolutely intentional, that he would heal on the Sabbath and that he would tell this man, I want you to take up your bed and walk. Because that's a work. That's a work, and this is the Sabbath. It was one of 39 works that they actually added to the law of Moses. It wasn't according to the law of Moses. Moses' law didn't violate the real law, didn't violate uh, in this way. It says that you shall not work or labor, but that is with regard to commerce, with regard to you're not going to go to your job. You're not going to hook up the mule and start plowing. You're not going to, whatever your work is, you're not going to be a silversmith or a blacksmith or whatever it was back in those days. You're not going to make your pots to sell You're going to have that day for rest is what you're going to do. But they add 39 things. And one of those 39 things that became the traditions of men was you don't pick anything up on the Sabbath. And they even had a certain weight. If it has a certain weight to it, you don't pick it up from one place and carry it to another. This is how meticulous they were in their traditions and in their legalism, in their formalism. And in their uber morality. So this is intentional. As we go forward, it's helpful to understand this. So this man is laying there friendless, helpless. There's nobody to help him into the pool. As he says, Jesus comes along on the Sabbath and heals him. So here again, we have a wonderful display of our Lord's mercy, of his compassion, and of his omnipotence. We see all of those things together as we have already in previous chapters. So the way I want to break this down, if time allows, is uh, in five parts. We will go through uh, some of most, probably most of them more quickly than others. But first of all, we're going to look at verse 1 through 5. We're going to look at the crippled. After that, we're going to look at verse 6 to 7, the call. And verse 8 and 9, the command. And in verse 10 through 13, the conflict. And fifth, the caution, verses 14 to 16. So let's start with verse 1 to 5, the crippled. We have here this lame man. He's an invalid. And this he's physically lame. He's an invalid. And he is uh, obviously unable to move. And there's no one that's willing to help him. Okay, so we learned that much so far. Here's what the text says. Verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So which feast this is, I mean, I spent some time reading all of the different opinions and all of them come down to really one conclusion that maybe you've drawn already. It doesn't matter what feast this is. It has no bearing on actually what's going on here. It's probably the Passover is the best thinking on it. But all of this, as commentators will commonly do, is nothing more than speculation that really doesn't help us understand the import of this passage. We don't want to get caught up in those kinds of things. 
So Jesus went up to Jerusalem and by the sheep gate a pool. And he the in the Aramaic the pool is called Bethesda, which Bethesda means um as as you might guess, a number of different definitions, but the most common are uh, house of pity or mercy is what Bethesda means, but also the place of twin outpourings. And so there were there was someone uh, called the Pilgrim of Bordeaux who back in thirty or three hundred and thirty three A.D. recorded that quote inside the city is a pair of pools with five arcades, which pools are called Bethsaida. Bet means house. Bethsaida is what it was called. So this testimony, as F.F. F. Bruce said, it was confirmed by the evidence of recent excavations there. So we've had this confirmed in terms of archaeological excavations that are made that somewhere near what the, was the extant sheep gate, which is the gate where all of the sheep that were going to be sacrificed are brought in, that there was a pool there. So it's a wonderful piece of history. I love finding history that never discounts uh, the accounts of Scripture, they always confirm. So here is another confirmation of that. Verse 3, in these, in these lay a multitude of invalids in these colonnades, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So as I said, we bypass chapter 4 uh, for the reasons I had explained, and we go on to verse what is... Uh, enumerated as verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, that's it's interesting in that, according to Deuteronomy 2 and verse 14, that's the amount of years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. You can take your speculations from there if you care to, that it's the reason why it's intentional, this citing the exact number of, of years but this could be drawing a picture of the Jewish nation and its wanderings and so on. But that's just interesting speculation as well. Secondly, after the crippled, so we have the crippled now. We see the man there, and he is lame. He's an invalid, as, and the place is filled with a number of other people that are suffering either disease or physical disabilities and so on. He's completely immobilized. He can't move at all. Now let's look at the call in verse 6 and 7. It gets interesting going forward here now. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What do you think about asking a question like that? He's an invalid and he asks him, do you want to be healed? It gets my attention because if we can't come up with something that's really got some serious divine purpose to it, it sounds a little cruel. You're asking a man who's laying here as an invalid, do you want to be healed? If he's a, Nor a New Yorker, I know how he's going to respond to you. I doubt he was from New York. Very much. Verse 7, we're going to look at this, though. The, verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, so he must have some way of making his way down there, another steps down before me. 
Wonderful compassion of fallen human beings, right? They cut him off. We don't know how many years he's been there. 38 years he's been an invalid. Doesn't mean that he's necessarily been at the pool of Bethesda for 30, 38 years. Somebody's cutting him off. He can't quite get to the pool. Of course, you're wondering, why doesn't he just make his way down there, get in the pool and wait for it to get stirred up? But we shouldn't ask these questions that we're not given the answer to, right? So our Lord initiates the conversation. I want to start there because these are the things that intrigue me. Our Lord initiates the conversation. Who else did he initiate a conversation with previously? Woman at the well. So something's going on here. Something far beyond a, a simple healing, which is wonderful and glorious in and of itself. There's something more here. I'm always intrigued by the questions that he asks. You remember in chapter 1 when John the Baptist announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's the first time that what would become the apostles turn and see him and go to him. What does he say? What do you think, guys? I'm here. What is he? What is he? Is it a statement he makes? He asks a question, a penetrating, profound question, a question that lingers in your heart if you allow it to. What are you seeking? Wow. Yeah, that's a good question to ask any of us who claim to be Christians or claim to be seeking Christ. What are you actually seeking? What do you really want in your heart? It's an important question, isn't it? Let's remember that as we're looking at him asking this question, which would otherwise seem like mean. Do you want to be healed? Do you? Do you? Well, you might say I'm not lame. Remember, Jesus goes far beyond physical things, doesn't he? If he wanted us all to be healed physically, he could simply speak a word and that would happen. He's asking this question that I have trouble getting past unless I see a deeper reason why he would ask it like he asked his mother when she said in chapter 2, they're out of wine. That seems, the way he responds to her there, do you remember, doesn't seem altogether respectful of mom. Woman? What does that have to do with me? Think about that question. What do the things in your my life have to do? What The things that occur, what do they have to do with me? If I thought more deeply about that question, maybe I wouldn't suffer so much in the milieu that the Lord providentially brings along in my life. Lord, what does this have to do with me? I don't know. What are you seeking? Do you want the Lord? So our Lord initiates this conversation. It's unasked for. It's, It's unsolicited, in other words. He just asks it's unexpected but he mercifully addresses a very sick man 
This man has been neglected, overlooked, passed by to the pool. There's a great multitude there. But the all-seeing eye of our Lord Jesus Christ sees him. And that, as well, is very much intentional. This man, this infirmity, this day, every single soul that's there to witness what's going on is intentional. Now it gets interesting. Do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus have to ask this question? Of course he wants to be healed. Why are you asking this? But isn't this the question that he asks every fallen creature as a prelude to the gospel? What is it that you're seeking? Do you want to be healed? I don't see him asking me. Somebody might protest. Oh, yes, he's asking you, do you want to be healed? What do you suppose the majority of people answer to that question? Yeah, if I can dial in who you are and what that healing looks like, yes. What if it requires your death? Your death to self, that you might live for the Christ who would live in you. Do you still want to be healed? Okay, now I have to get back to you, because that's like everything. Yeah. What is it that you want And do you really want to be healed? In an honest moment, we might find ourselves hesitating at least. And maybe we should if we're wise. I have no one. Okay, now you know where he's been looking for healing. Where has he been looking? Horizontally. Which direction is Jesus trying to draw his attention? Vertically. There's nobody here. Could you or I go 38 years without really wanting the healing? (laughs) The insidious nature of sin. Are we that much of a rascal? Mm -hmm. we are I don't really want all of that healing the way the Lord challenges uh, my heart I'm not on board with that I'm not I'm not on board with that I have no one it's no doubt it's here intentionally to remind us of the cold hearted selfishness of other fallen human beings including ourselves before we knew Christ His mistake was looking to mankind to be healed. We have doctors. They're just human beings. Yes. This is far more than physical healing. He's not just there to go in. If that was his purpose, he'd go in and heal them all, wouldn't he? He didn't. He picked one man. 
He picked one day, and he performed one miracle. Do you want to be healed? Well, there's, there's nobody here. So we might say to people we witness who, uh, do you want to be healed? If we use that expression, I, I don't. Ha- I tried everything. I've uh, gone to the doctor. I've gotten the medications. I've I've done. All- I've had months worth of therapy. I've had. I've tried a number of things. Vacations. I've gone here. I try to. I I work hard so I can get a big house, and I'm still troubled. <coughs> okay. What's he got to do with us? What's he got to do with you and I? What does he have to do to get through to us? Three, the command. All right, now, now we're going to see the mechanics of this, the gospel itself, okay? So here's the call. Do you want to be healed? Watch what happens. Verse 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. The power to heal, of course, as we've seen and we see now again, is in the words of Jesus Christ. In his words, the words inherent have divine power coming from Jesus Christ. He said in another healing, you remember the man with the withered hand? In Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So why is he doing this? Why is he asking from people things that they can't do themselves? Get up. Take up your bed. Stretch out that withered hand. That's a test of their faith. It's faith coupled. It's, it's, it's faith that was given access to the power that healed. Do what he says according to his word, and there's power in it. But the power comes from his words. And its access comes by faith. Do what he says. Otherwise, what have you done with this verse? It was intriguing to me. Get up, take up your bed and walk. That sounds cruel. Stretch out that withered hand. He does, and it's healed. He stands, and he can walk. This is the point. This is the point. J.C. Ryle says, Commands like these tested the faith and obedience of those to whom they were given. It was precisely in the act of obedience that the blessing came, end quote. That's the point. This isn't some word of faith nonsense where you speak words and your words have power according to your will and your desire. No, 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 no. We pray according to the will of God as Scripture teaches 
according to his revealed will, of course, but it might be his ordained will that that's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen now. And in some cases, it might wait until glory for the full healing to take place. We know that these bodies are fallen because of sin. They're going to suffer. He's making an ancillary point here. He's making a different point here. Not to send us off with some crazy notion that we should be able to speak words like we have the power to make them happen. And if we didn't make them happen, we, our faith wasn't strong enough. There's no God in that picture. There's no sovereign will of a, of a holy God whose intentions are only good, as we looked at in the first hour, in allowing suffering in the first place. The Odyssey is one of the most difficult doctrines to to grapple with the vindication of God for allowing evil or suffering at all. Why does he allow it? He couldn't even roll himself into a pond. You're going to be left with, there's, this is at the very least cruel. If we don't reconcile what's going on here, and the point of it regarding faith, regarding trust, regarding belief, and that's the point of the gospel. These things were written, chapter 20 and verse 31. All of these things happened. All of these things were recorded that you might what? Believe, yes. And there's great power in that. You don't think that he lacks power or that you lack faith because you didn't get things to happen your way. We'd better not. We're going to be filled with disappointment. We're unable to reconcile. I have no one, he said. He said that to the living Son of God standing before him. And the Son of the living God looks him in the eye and says, Get up. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Why that part? because he knew who it would rankle. Could have left the bed there. Doesn't need it anymore. It's a yoga mat. Leave it there. <clears throat> Get up. And take up your bed. He knows who's watching. Take up your bed and walk with it. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Have faith. Get up. Take up that bed and walk. Amazing. Amazing. So it's his command that carries the power. Now we might enter into a part of this understanding that is even more difficult for us because we don't like that word. And so our lives lack power. So we end up miserable, whether we're physically healthy or infirm. We're not happy. We don't have joy. It's that command that carries the very enablement, enablement rather, to do what he's calling you to do. It's inherent in the command. So when you're told to do something by Jesus, it'll have great power if you do it. 
do it, right? We've seen that over and over in our lives, hopefully. It's just like the, the power that was inherent in these words in chapter 11. Lazarus, what? Come forth. Hey, here he comes. Here he comes. When people obey his command to believe, God works in and through that word. We must remember that. Four. Of course there has to be this, right? This is just our this is just the way of a fallen world, the conflict. Here they come. Here they come. <laughs> Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man, there there we go, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. We call that blame shifting and biblical counseling, but what else is he going to say? I mean, he's probably frightened. They've got their robes and their phylacteries and their tassels and their entourage who told you to pick up that bed and walk here the legalists come into your life they asked him who is this man who said to you take up your bed and walk now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, mind you, again, I remind you, as I remind myself, there's every single thing about the Word of God is intentional. He's split. He's done that before, right? Or he's about to do that again. He disappeared. Why? It's not his time. It's not his time. But it's time to light the fuse. The persecution must begin. And the way to do that, as in many cases, is through jealousy. Who is this guy I think he is? We have these rules. He's not abiding by them. So the Sabbath, obviously, is the central issue here for the conflict. It's a Sabbath day, and he shouldn't be carrying his, his bed one place to another. So the religionist legalists are seething. They're seething now with jealousy and religious, religious or formalist indignation. You're not doing this the way that you're supposed to. According to Moses? Is that? No, it's not Moses, but this is how you are supposed to be. We got you now. So here's the evidence of their malevolent, malicious spirit. And we'll see this escalate as we go through John's gospel. So instead of asking, note this, you probably all have already. Instead of asking who, who cured you, wouldn't that be the question to ask? Yeah, it's who told you to pick up that bed and walk. See, that's the way they are. The legalists, the formalists, the moralizers. And they will stalk him throughout the rest of his time until they 
kill him because that's what unchecked jealousy does. It's so filled with white hot hatred that it wants to kill. It wants to eliminate. It wants to destroy. And it's driven until that happens. And that in God's providence, God's not so weak that he couldn't have prevented this. No, it actually turns out to be the exact plan that God has in mind for the salvation of mankind. Amazing. They had no compassion. They cared nothing about mercy, even though their Old Testament prophets talked about the importance of being merciful, about God, who Ephesians 2 is rich in mercy. Uh, Be like your Father, who is merciful, Sermon on the Mount. No, that doesn't matter. None of that matters. We want to know who just broke the law, which is no law of Moses. Again, it's a it's our own tradition. Ryle said this, How many are like them? They are always looking out for something to find fault with. End quote. That's true. And when they find it, and it's according to their understanding of things, their traditions of men, there's no escape because it's not real. It's not real. This is something they made up the traditions of men, the scribes who were the lawyers of, who were the protectors of the law of Moses, apparently couldn't resist the temptation to add things on to the law of Moses, and that's what they've done. Here in this case on the Sabbath, there's 39 extra, extra laws, so-called. But as Jesus rebukes them heartily for, you teach as laws of Moses what? their traditions of men. That's what they're mad about. He could have certainly come a day earlier, couldn't he? He didn't have to come on the Sabbath. Listen how he handles this in chapter 7 when we get there. So John chapter 7, 19 to 24. Listen, we have a little exchange that's helpful here. It's very similar to what's going on. Here's it's explained a little better, or more fully, I should say, not better. John seven nineteen to 24, has not Moses given you the law? He's talking to these religionists, these Pharisees and scribes. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? <laughs> Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Listen to this. This is brilliant. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You're inflicting injury on a man's body every Sabbath that you circumcise. I heal a man's entire body one time. Uh, You marvel at this one thing that I did. And you're spinning out of control. You don't know what to do with it. Verse 22. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made man's whole body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is powerful. Get the ending there. Stop looking at the outside. What does 1 Samuel 16, 7 say? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what Jesus is essentially saying here. I want to help this man that I just healed. You're performing some religious formalism and inflicting pain on him at the same time, but that's okay, and you do that over and over repeatedly. One time I heal a man on the Sabbath, and you're crying out, get the spirit of the law, will you? I require mercy rather than sacrifice. Loving kindness, compassion, right? Colossians 2, 16 to 17, pretty much we get rid of the whole obligation legally to obey the Sabbath. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. He, he understand, Paul understands this now because of what happened in the life of Christ, namely what I had just read to you. He's very familiar with. So don't let them judge you. Don't let them pass judgment with questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You're not abiding by these, right? Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to whom? To Christ. He's fulfilled all of these. And if that isn't enough, we read in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath, Jesus said, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See that? So our point is, with regard to this man and his command, get up and walk, and the faith that was obviously inherent in the power he, was, he received to be healed. Love and obedience always walk hand in hand. They always do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because when you keep my commandments, that's when the power comes into your life. Until then, you struggle. You're going to struggle. Keep my commandments. Don't let deceivers convince you that that's legalistic to say because we didn't say it. Jesus did. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do it. Why? Because that is your best life now. That is the place of mighty power. And perfectly healthy bodies? No. My power, 2 Corinthians 12, is made known in your what? In your weakness. Why? Because a person can have this rock of Gibraltar faith even when their body is perishing. It's not about I must be healed. This body's going to the grave that we might be with Christ. How about that? How about that? Those who willfully choose not to obey Christ are not loving him no matter what they say. Oh, I love Jesus, really. 
but yet you're at Shoney's. You're at the buffet when you pick and choose the things that you're going to obey. It doesn't work that way. He brings his word into our lives, his commandments into our lives, because he wants to dispense his power in your life, in my life. And sometimes it's hard as we are going through such a wonderful way in the first hour. Alexander McLaren said, listen to this. I, I just, the way he puts things, are, I have to include it. It is joy to know and to do the will of the one to whom the whole heart turns with gratitude and affection. That should be the, that's the only acceptable impetus for obedience. Love him. Lord, here I am. What would you have me think, say, and do? I'm so filled with gratitude for what you've done in my life. I, I'm bursting forth with a falseness of joy because I'm alive. You've made me alive, a dead man walking. You've made me alive. He goes on, and Christ blesses and privileges us by the communication to us of his pleasure concerning us that we may have the gladness of yielding to his desires and so meeting the love which commands with the happy love which obeys, end quote. The layman said, the man who healed me that man said to me, that's the key. He said it. I believed it. What's the... That settles it. You've seen the bumper sticker. When are you going to have that meme up? That's a good one. Think about it. <laughs> Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. And then the power gets unleashed. It doesn't... Listen, it doesn't get unleashed when you're in contrary to what his word is clearly saying to you. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. It's like he's saying, He who gave me the power to heal, had he not the right to tell me what to do with it? He who gave me the, the ability to heal, this, these wonderful words that have power in them, he who gave me that power to heal, doesn't he have the right to tell me what to do with it? What to do with that power? And it's unplugged, folks, from the wall socket if we don't. It's amazing how many people want the Savior without the sovereign, isn't it? Oh, they oh, I'm reformed. Uh-huh. <laughs> till you get till you get to know us a little bit better. Not really. I believe in the sovereignty. Do you? No, you want the Savior because just the Savior, I can be saved and then to go on and live my life the way I want to without even consulting what he's had to say. Greatest challenge in the Christian life is to think biblically. We're too interested in ourselves. They want the benefits, but not his commands, right? They want his love without his lordship. That's another way of putting it. 
He who has the power to redeem our lives also has the right to rule them, yeah? He saved our lives with great power, with immeasurable sacrifice. So he has the right to rule my life however he sees fit. And I say yes and amen. Sometimes that includes very difficult things. Very difficult things. McLaren said, the only person that has a right to command you is the Christ who saves you, end quote. There isn't a first century disciple who really grappled with and knew the difference between the dangers of living under the law and grace. And that's Peter, right? Peter, remember he compromised Paul in Galatians writes about how he had to rebuke Peter because he's acting one way when he's with Gentiles and eating another way when the Jews show up. He understands this. He understands compromise to the point of denying the Christ that bought his soul. Listen to what he says. This is the Jerusalem council now. He's a fisherman at the Jerusalem council. The Lord's own half-brother, the leader in that church, James. And they're all meeting all the illuminaries, all the theologians, Peter stands up. What does he say? Here's what he said, Acts 15, 10 to 11. Now, therefore, with regard to the salvation of the Gentiles, that's the issue. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Nobody knows that better than him. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just, and this had to rankle them, just as they will, the Gentiles. You have to understand what he just said and to whom he just said it. Wow. Where's that power coming from? You know. And so Galatians 5 and verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Why does he have to tell us that? Because we're tempted to legalism. We're tempted to yield to people's legalistic and formalistic ways, right? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, stand firm. The only place where you do not stand alone. He stands with you. If it's by grace, that's his plan. I've done all the doing. If you'll stand in grace, you stand with me. You stand in me. Don't move. That's why it says stand firm. Don't move. Why? Because we have a tendency. What is it? Our tendency from the womb is legalism. We would rather, get, we would rather do things our way. And still call ourselves Christians, by the way. God help us. Verse 18 of Galatians 5, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Doesn't, don't you sense just even hearing that a relief, a burden off of you? You should, if it's having its effect. He's done all the heavy lifting for us, hasn't he? 
He's done that for us. Isn't that good? No, it's spectacular. And so 1 John 5, 3 can say, for this is the love of God. Here it is. He's going to define the love of God for us. What is it? Go on, John, that we keep his commandments. That's love. That's the love of God. Do things my way. Think biblically. If you're about to, if you're making a decision to do something, what saith the scriptures? What is Jesus saying to you right now in real time? He's speaking to you in real time. What's he saying? What's he saying? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's love. And his commandments are not burdensome. The burdens are lifted. As soon as you step outside of that grace and do things your way, you've become, like them in our story, a legalist. Because you've denied the grace, so you forfeited the grace that could have been yours if you'd have stayed in the grace of God instead of becoming a pick-and-choose legalist. I'll obey this, not that. How much of you does Jesus want? All of you. I came to die for all of you. I don't want parts. I want the whole because I love you. And I know how you should live if you would listen to me and obey. Isn't that a wonderful song? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be what? Miserable and reformed in Jesus. <laughs> I'm done picking up on reformed people because I'm one of them. To be happy. Let him define what happiness is. Let him lay out the path for us. Here it is. Here it is. He withholds nothing. He wants you to have everything that you need to live your best life now. This is the book. Get up and walk. And take your, take your pallet with you and watch what happens. <laughs> wow. You think I stir it up. Whew. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Now, this is Jesus. You know what Moses sounds like. Here's Jesus. Come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because I fulfilled the Mosaic law. Every bit of it for your sake. Just follow me. Just follow me. And this is how you follow Jesus. There's no other way. Fifth and finally, the caution. There is a caution at the very end. Verse 14 to 16. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Note, Jesus sought him out. (laughs) The hound of heaven is coming after you. He sought him out. He sought you out. But be ready. Be ready. You will be challenged under the full ministry of his word. It will challenge you. And some will continue to follow him and some will not. That's it. He sought him out. So, this doesn't mean where he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That's not necessarily because it was his sins that led to his his physical condition, his being lame. We know that from John chapter 9 when we get there, Lord willing, verse 3, with the blind man. It's neither him nor his parents' sin, but that God, what? Might be glorified. So we don't know. But it's a good warning. It's a good caution altogether, isn't it? It's a caution. Because if we pay no attention to His Word and His commands and we choose which ones we're going to follow and obey and not others, He's saying, you won't do well. You're not going to do well. So we'll close with an application here. I want you to see how this applies briefly and we'll pray. So we have the crippled the call, the command, the conflict, and the caution. And that's lots. Let me unpack those five just briefly in a statement that's up here for you. You can either uh, give it a a screenshot or you can uh, find the outline on Sermon Audio when Charles has it posted. The crippled. We are crippled when Jesus finds us. This isn't just limited to physical things. It might include physical things. But all of us are born crippled. You understand that. Because of sin. So that's the cripple. The call, secondly, his call comes to all of us, and here it is Do you want to be healed? I mean, that's a very fair question. Answer it fairly. If he can't have all of you, how much will he accept? None of you. That's the call. So the command three, obeying his commands by faith brings the healing power or the power to heal. Obeying his commands by faith, trust, belief brings the power to heal physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Four. The conflict. Conflict comes in the form of selfish, cold-hearted legalism. And you're going to run into it if you haven't already. And it's hard when it does. Five. Jesus cautions. This is the caution. Jesus cautions us to turn from our sin that we may be healed. So how often do we just need that once? Well, we need it when we're saved, right? Is that, thanks for healing me, we're done, I can go do what I want. (laughs) No, we still get jammed up, don't we? 
because we're fallen human beings. He knows that. Turn to him. He's saying that to this man. Look, stop sinning. Be healed. That's all he's saying to us. First words out of his mouth in his earthly ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Turn back toward God. Just do that. I close with Hebrews 12, 11 to 13 that really, I think, captures the principles here. We're talking about when we cripple ourselves up in our lives, even as believers. So this, obviously, this whole thing applies to believers or unbelievers. It's a call to the cross for unbelievers. It's called to all of us to get to the cross as Christians when we fail or when we sin. If we're suffering in some way, it's crippling us, you could say. For that, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands. This is an imperative. This is a command. Lift them up. Lift them up. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be what? Healed. Be healed. Where are you crippled right now? Do you know him? If you don't know him, that's how you're crippled. Respond in faith to his command to come to him to receive forgiveness. And for you Christians, it's the same thing for us. Because we cripple ourselves up, don't we? That's why the world calls us hypocrites. We say, no, we're not hypocrites. We're actually sincere about the fact that we're still sinners, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. That should give you hope. We don't pretend to be perfect. My goodness, no. We understand and appreciate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't want to forfeit it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we've had together this morning. I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story that helps us to see this man who's healed and what it took for him to receive the healing power of the Son of God. Surely he believed. Perhaps not everything he needed to believe all at once, but he believed. He believed enough that he could stand up physically. We hope that his being found at the temple means that he was looking for, for answers from God and he, well, rather you, went and found him there in your father's house. How glorious. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, compassion. I pray, oh Lord, I pray with all my heart for those who have heard this message that they would turn to you now in these moments that we take after the sermon, I pray that they would take those moments to come before you. Say, Lord, I know that you see me. You see me crippled. You're a God of seeing. You're a God who is there. 
Save us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.